you are listening to the Quarter to Three Games Podcast for the very last week of January. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week this week is not Diablo 3. Josh, I have, by the way, uh, thrown you under a bus because one of the things that I constantly do is forget to mention to the guests that they get to introduce themselves with a game that is not their game of the week. Uh, so pretend I explained that to you before, and uh, tell us who you are, and pick a random thing that is not your game of the week. I hi, I'm Josh DeBonis. I'm a game designer, and um, my game of the week is not um, is it's not. Puerto There's a Rico. lot to choose from. I know, Puerto Rico, isn't that like highly rated on Board Game Geek? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's it's a game I used to play a lot, although I I don't really play it anymore. It actually it feels a little bit dated for a board game, which is kind of amazing. I think I'm uh, with you 100. percent I mean, I I wanted, that would be one of the last games I would want to play. I think I think I've kind of grown out of Puerto Rico. Yeah, it kind of shows how far board games have evolved just in the last like five years. It's definitely a thriving industry when you can decide that you're past a design as solid. And as one-time innovative as Puerto Rico, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so sorry, Josh, I, I forgot. I forgot to explain that to you. You handled <laughs> it uh, wonderfully. Um, okay, great. But I'm elated to have you here today because uh, you've been partly responsible for this crazy gaming kick that I've been on recently that, that we'll get to in a little bit. Um, but first, I want to talk to you about uh, who you are and what you've been doing lately. So uh, you you're out there in Brooklyn. You right. ju- you just completed a uh, I would characterize it as overwhelmingly successful Kickstarter. That must be how you feel, right? Yeah, absolutely. It it was a lot of work, but it was definitely worth it. Um, I mean, we we met our goal and surpassed it. And uh, but I think even more important than that is it was so encouraging to us how so many people showed up and you know showed us that they were interested in this game and we got a lot of great publicity and press and built a lot of excitement around the game which is which is so great. The, the game uh i if someone had told me that that uh there was going to be a game based on the lewis and clark expedition uh, i immediately would have thought of seven cities of gold and just been really excited to see somebody doing maybe a, a, a strategy, resource allocation kind of thing. And I, I would have been grateful, and I would have thought, that's wonderful. No one else but me is going to want to play it. It's not going to be successful at all. Uh, but so the two things that delight me are the the amount of enthusiasm beyond history nerds like, like me, and I'm a pretty mild history nerd, and your approach to the design and how it seems like it's very different than a straight-up Seven Cities of Gold uh, clone. So I want to talk about those two things. Uh, mm-hmm. First of all, the, the rece- oh, we should say, why don't, why don't you tell us what the game is and give us – you must have an elevator pitch for it, right? Sure, yeah. The game is called Meriwether, and it's a, it's an, it's a role-playing game, a computer role-playing game about the Lewis and Clark expedition. Mm-hmm. And you play as Meriwether Lewis – and it follows the journey from Washington, D.C. to the Pacific and back. Now, uh, that's very history nerdy. It does not involve World War II. It does not involve terrorists. And as near as I can tell, there are no aliens in it. Uh, 
I, however, uh, there, there was a lot of enthusiasm about it. Did that surprise you? Did you know that there were folks out there who would be interested in this? Uh, how did you feel about the reception to Meriwether? Yeah, I, I knew that there certainly would be um, a niche audience that would that would be into it. Um, and I, I had spoken with a lot of those people before. I, I wasn't really sure how sort of like the indie game community would respond to it. And uh, and that they responded very well, and, and uh, you know surprised me a little bit. And uh, but in retrospect, you know, kind of doesn't because we're trying to tackle something that's a, you know a little bit more of a challenge and uh, just a little bit different. So uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I was pleasantly surprised by um, the variety of people that were into it. Now, as far as the design approach that you're taking. Uh You mentioned that it's an RPG, uh, clearly different from what something like Seven Cities of Gold is doing, although I do see elements of of that. Uh, Definitely. uh, It seems to me the unique selling point, as it were, is how this is based on uh, Meriwether Lewis himself, and it's this kind of build-your-own Lewis kind of, where where you decide what kind of person he's going to be. Uh, Explain how you came to that design decision and maybe tell us a little bit about how that would work sure yeah so i mean while there are definitely these resource management elements of the game the systemy parts of it that i think are are also really um exciting um when we first started getting into the story of lewis and clark we we realized that the thing that makes it great is the story and that's that's kind of and, and the characters it's it's a combination of the story and the characters that, and that's what led us to making it a role-playing game. Uh-huh. Um, and so the challenge that we had, and, and this has been a challenge throughout, and we're still finding ways to solve this, is, is how do you make a game about a story that's already been told, considering that games are all about choice? Uh-huh. And, uh, and so you know, we, we, wanted, we wanted to tell this existing story, but allow you to manipulate it uh, the way that you do in a game. Um, so what we arrived at, and I think this is one of the most interesting parts of the game, at least to me, is that a lot of the time, rather than choosing what the expedition is going to do or what Lewis will do, you choose how he does it or maybe like which part of his character does it. And so we've uh, split Lewis's character into five different facets, mm-hmm. which are soldier, leader, diplomat, scientist, and melancholy, and um, those those are the choices that you can uh, choose between, primarily in uh, when you're in dialogue, but also those re- each relate to certain uh, you know other actions that he can take. For instance, like um, soldier relates to his skill with a rifle. Mm-hmm. It, it does sound a bit like those are class choices almost. Uh, that's true, although it's rather rather than just uh, playing one of them, you uh-huh. are you know those are all elements of your character, uh-huh. um, and you can you can lean you know more towards one than another, but but you can't um, you can't ignore them all completely. And, can, can, and, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So so you can you can steer him in a direction, but you can't. It's not that you choose to be either a scientist or. A leader. You know, you're, those are all parts of, of Lewis's character. 
I guess what the framework that I kind of have in mind when I hear you explaining that is almost like something like like Mass Effect, where as you're playing, you lean towards Paragon or Renegade, and there's like a continuum, a scale, and you're you're moving along that scale. Uh, is that at all similar to what's going on with Lewis's Five Facets? Yeah, it, it is, and certainly that was an influence um, in you know in our game, and. And, and in more ways than, than that, I think Mass Effect was a large influence on this. But um, it's a little more nuanced than that because they're not they, they they're not opposite each other. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so you can be um, you can be very balanced, which I, I don't think is a very viable option in Mass Effect. Um, in Meriwether, you can choose to be very balanced, or you can lean um, toward one direction or, or another. Although you you have to be balanced in some sense. You can't you can't fully you know go in one direction. Are there other games that have influenced this this faceted Lewis model that you have? Um, I don't. I I think probably the biggest influence is, is that you know Mass Effect and Knights of the Old Republic, mm-hmm. which are essentially you know the same kind of uh, inspiration. Um, so no, I don't think so. I think that, I mean this is it's actually one of the things that has come directly out of the constraint of trying to portray this history mm-hmm. and, and trying and also we, we've been trying to do something new with the conversation mechanic. Um, you know, it's it's sort of a challenge that that a lot of role playing games face is like how do you how do you innovate on on dialogue trees? And I think this is one way. That you know, in at least in a small way, you know, we do have something um, that I think is pretty innovative and um, unique to this game, and I'm, it's it's one of the things that really excites me about it. Uh, one of the all, the things that also reminds me of the Mass Effect, the Bioware and Obsidian games, is you have a a, a very strong cast of central characters. Uh, obviously, the, the Lewis and Clark expedition had some notable characters, and you guys have certainly hit ones that I've heard, everybody knows, as well as ones that some folks might not know. Like, everybody sure. knows uh, Sacagawea and her little papoose. Uh, there's, of right. course, Clark, the, the co-captain. Uh, he had a slave, York. And then you guys have, like, a, a, a I believe, a, an, a tracker. A, I don't know if he's French yeah, or Indian. He's both. He's, okay. half, he's half French, half Indian, uh, Omaha. And uh, his name's Druyard, and he is uh, like the silent uh, uh, hunter who he's he's just a total badass, and um, you know re- a really interesting character, but also really powerful. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in part of the game, you you can control um, some of the other minor characters, and and th- this is one one way that I've realized like how much. Uh, people can get out of just like uh, playing these characters that how much they can learn about the history because whenever I play test it people they they always comment about like how great of a hunter uh, this guy Druyard is which you know directly reflects the actual story and, and I think in a great way and he's a, he's a really cool character he's it sounds of, like we, we call him like our Boba Fett <laughs> you know Joshua not everything is Star Wars <laughs> uh, it sounds like you couldn't have had a more perfect cast of, of characters. Like there's so many chapters of history where you're going to get stuck with uh, maybe not so dramatic 
characters or there's going to be just one towering figure rising above everyone else. It, it seems like this expedition is perfect for a, a small cast of characters that are all distinct from each other. I mean, you yeah, even got, for Pete's so sake, true. you've got a strong female character in there. That, that's got to be a precious commodity at this point yeah. in history. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so can you explain to me how it might play differently if my Lewis leans one way versus another? Like as I'm playing, as I'm moving through the dialogues, as I'm choosing the different facets, can you give me an example of how uh, the game will differ based on some of the choices I might make? Sure. So as as you in well, every time that you choose um, one facet in a conversation, it increases mm -hmm. the level of that facet, sort of the way that like a skill uh, would increase in a lot of RPGs. And that does two things. One is that it allows you um, it allows you to choose that option more often in conversations um, because there's there's this uh, game mechanic that is we call the melancholy mechanic. and you have to sort of balance out your personality. By choosing these melancholy options every every so many times, and when you do that, it, it recharges your other facets and allows you to, to choose those options. Mm -hmm. um, and and you do have to in some way you, you, uh, uh, balance all of these things. And um, but the, the higher your level is, the more often you can choose th that uh, that option before you have to, to choose melancholy, which is often uh, a, a bad choice. Uh, and you know either either thematically or gameplay wise, um, so that's one thing that it does. And the other is that it has some other game mechanic related to it. Like if you increase diplomat, you'll uh, have better uh, prices when you trade, um, or uh, be able to have better reactions from certain characters. Mm -hmm. um, or scientist helps you when you are observing plants and animals, um, which is a you know a big a big part of the game. It also helps you. You're, you're a um, you're the expedition's medic, and we have a, a, a like a medicine mini game that you know if you're a better scientist, it helps you in that. Um, uh, you mentioned a medic, so one of the things that this also reminds me of is uh, Oregon Trail, which is a classic uh, old school. I guess that was an RPG or adventure game, maybe even strategy game. But one of the notable things about Oregon Trail is how disastrously you could fail. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that an aspect of Merriweather? To some degree, but it's it's a little it's a little bit different because it's so narrative based. Mm -hmm. It's um, you know Merriweather. Well, whereas like Oregon Trail is a game that you play um, over and over again because it's a short play period for the uh, entire game. Um, Merriweather is more intended to be played uh, maybe you know once or twice through um, over over a long period because it's very narrative based. Um, however, within a given level, um, especially the procedurally generated travel levels, um, the, you can end in disaster in many different ways. And usually, it's it's due to e to either running out of food or um, the men's morale dropping so low due to a lot of these things that are the same types of like things maybe in Oregon Trail, like disease or um, the the elements. Um, or, you know, and occasionally there, you know, there are, there are dangers like, um, you know, like bears and buffalo that are dangerous as well as some hostile, uh, Native Americans that you encounter. 
But it's not a game about fighting. You know, generally, your goal in those situations is to try and resolve it peacefully. Uh, so then, can the characters die ahistorically? Like, for instance, could York get killed by a bear? Uh, yes. Uh, and uh, well, if if Lewis dies, the, uh, you have to go back to your last save. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, actually, the same for Clark. But um, but many of the other characters can die, and um, and you know, can impact the outcome of the game later on. So I've gone through, I've played an expedition, uh, I've explored some facets of Meriwether Lewis, uh, and then maybe, of course, I want to go back and play again. Like, it does seem, even though you mentioned it's a a longer narrative-based experience versus something like Oregon Trail, where you're supposed Mm -hmm. to play many, many times over, uh, is there... um, and this is just a sort of pet issue of mine. Is there anything like scoring or an evaluation of how you did or a ranking of historical figures like at the end of Civilization? Uh, is there any persistence amongst my games or any kind of meta game? Um, well, yeah, at, at the at the end of the, the game, we do give you like a narrative-based epilogue of, of what ah. happens to the characters based on your actions. I love that. Good. Um, okay. Cool, yeah, and... But that's, I guess, that's not quite what you're what you're asking. And uh, we do, um, we we do rank you on how quickly you made the expedition in uh-huh. in like game days. Um, so the actual expedition, you know, depending on where you consider it to start from, was between like two to four years. Um, and uh, the you know, if you, our game is starting from. DC and, and ending when you return there, um, so you know it's, that's a, a period of, a, of three to four years, and um, and so we compare you to the actual expedition, at, you know whether you are faster or slower, and um, we also rank you on how many uh, discoveries that you made of plants and animals and uh, things like that. Um, additionally, we um, have a mode that it was one of our stretch goals for the Kickstarter that um, is called Endless Arcade Mode that allows you to play the, the more replayable part of the game, which is the travel levels, and the more mm-hmm. systemic part. Um, it allows you to replay that uh, you, basically until you die. And that is more of like a score system where you would, you know, you play it, uh, you play it over and over again like something like Oregon Trail. Right. That sounds perfect, by the way. I'm entirely cool. satisfied with that with that answer. <laughs> All right, good. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned the uh, the discovering of plants and animals, and, of course, one aspect of the expedition was the, the scientific discovery. Um, it seems to me when, when you talk about this and when I see footage of, of the game, I'm obviously reminded of a Bethesda game like Skyrim, where there's this sense of exploration and of looking at the animals and plants. Uh, in Skyrim, that's mostly implied you know you're doing storyline stuff you're leveling up your character you've obviously chosen to make that an explicit part of Meriwether uh, explicitly discovering new plants discovering new animals I think also contact with the various uh, Native American cultures Um, so it it seems like this is a a, an explicit exploration game And, and can you tell me a bit about how that works is that you mentioned that's something that at the end of the game you you track how many things how many scientific discoveries did your character make? Uh, tell me a bit about how that works. 
Sure. And so it, it differs a little bit depending on the different types of things that you're discovering. So for one thing, encountering different tribes um, is just literally a matter of, of meeting them and talking to them. And some of them you can't avoid. They're more, you know, they're, they're critical to the story and they'll be the focus of certain levels. But then there's others that you may have to actually seek out in some of the levels that are more optional. So you can, you may choose to, to spend some time or resources to find them, um, which will, um, can often pay off because they'll, they'll give you gifts or maybe, um, give you information about the area around you. Um, so, so that's one thing that you can discover is, um, is these tribes as well as some of the cultural aspects around them, which I think are really interesting. I mean, each of these tribes are a completely different nation. They see each other, um, as, as different as, European nations see each other, mm-hmm. and they have they each have their own culture, and you know it's really, really amazing and been an incredible part to work on. Um, as far as things like plants and animals, um, I think the plants are really interesting, and we couldn't show much of this for the Kickstarter because it was uh, still using all placeholder art, and it was uh, it just wasn't at that point yet, but it's getting there now. Um, each of the plants has a unique model. A, three, a unique 3D model. So as you're um, as you're moving through the space, you're always on the lookout for something that you haven't seen before. Um, and if you do encounter something new, all the plants are are interactive, and you can like take a sample of them. And um, when you find something new, you take a sample of it, and there the, you try to um, piece together like a a good uh, sketch of the entire plant um and uh by by taking these samples and so it sort of is like this uh, visual um a little bit like kind of like a puzzle putting these t- together mm-hmm. um to to form a complete picture and so sometimes there'll be like a very common flower that's just there'll be fields of it and it's just you know it's a matter of like how efficient you want to be in taking these samples but a lot of times there'll be something that's much more rare and you'll have to to be very precise in which samples you take from it, and also, you know, try and seek it out. Maybe even over the course of several levels. We uh, we had a, a fella on the podcast a few weeks ago who was talking about playing Skyrim with a bunch of different mods, and one of the mods that he uses uh, adds more birds, different types of birds, and they flock realistically. and And in the conversation during the podcast and afterwards. It occurred to some of us how cool would it be to have an actual bird watching mod in a game like Skyrim, where you want to look out around the world and look for specific kinds of birds. And if you see a bird off in the distance, you might want to like pull out a telescope or something and look at it and check off in your book whether or not you've seen it before, kind of as a collectible mode uh, that plays on forcing you to look at and examine the environment. Uh, and it sounds like you're doing something similar with this plant gathering, like gathering the pieces of the sketch to assemble a full sample. Yeah, that, that's that is true, and yeah, and and we have essentially something similar to what you're talking about with the bird watching. I I'm really curious. I'm definitely gonna have to check out that mod. Um, there there's a great game by uh, Large Animal Games that is a it's a bird watching game. Oh, um, it's called Oh Snapshot Adventures. It's called. Mm-hmm. And 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's all about that, and that's something that you know we looked at as sort of a as an influence. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, okay, that I love I love the idea of uh, Skyrim birdwatching. <laughs> now, I will say too, uh, looking at the like the Kickstarter video and on your page, I know you you've linked to uh, you, you've actually done some kind of touring to get funding for this game, and you have a few grants. And in the course of that touring, you've gotten some local news coverage, and you've posted videos of that news coverage. Uh, on your on the site for Meriwether, and so I've looked at them, and the the news coverage uses a much footage from a much earlier build of the game. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so looking at that build, and then fast forwarding to the Kickstarter video, where you've obviously got a more developed graphical look, like you've obviously done a lot of work on the, the assets, and now they have an almost would you say cell shaded look to them? Yeah, it's. It's not exactly cel-shaded, but it's pretty close. Um, I mean, the, the the biggest thing there is that they they have an outline around mm-hmm. them. It's a it's a fairly thin outline, and it's um, and, and then they also the colors and textures are a little bit uh, hyper stylized. They're they're mm-hmm. they're more um, satu- they're they're extra saturated. Which I think, by the way, is a, a good call because it's it's obvious you're not going for a photorealistic, immersive Skyrim. I mean, uh, that sort right. of huge production value, I think it, it's better to go for character rather than trying to do elaborate photorealistic production exactly. values. Exactly. And, and I think you guys have nailed that pretty well. Even uh, if – I think – I mean, we, we, we don't want to go for uh, photorealistic, but even if we did, we don't have the budget. You know, this is a fairly right. small production – um, so, but I think we we want to give it the, a, um, you know, a feel of like a, a different, unique feel, mm-hmm. and um, I, we're actually trying to push it even a little farther in that direction. Uh, so, three quick questions: uh, What is your current timeline in, in terms goal? of when people can actually start banging on this? Yeah. Um, our, well, our goal is for our our beta testers to get copies of it um, by the end of July, and then um, the game it will, should be released by November. Uh, second question: uh, Who's the dog? Oh, the dog. Uh, his name is Seaman, um, which you know is a bit of an unfortunate name. <laughs> uh, I wasn't and, thinking that. I... And the, the butt of endless jokes. Um, <laughs> But uh, he's a Newfoundland dog, and uh, he uh, Lewis purchased him just before the expedition, and he was by his side uh, the entire time. Um, he was a lot of people think of him as a pet, but I think as I've learned more and more about this, I I can see that that Lewis saw him as a working dog, like the same way that that he would see a horse, mm-hmm. for instance. And I'm sure he did grow attachment to him. But um, he would always just write the dog or my dog. He wouldn't he wouldn't refer ah. to him by name in his journals. And only um, one of the other journal journalists, one of the privates, refers to him by name, I believe. And then there's also uh, and and actually the handwriting uh, in the journals it looks like Scannon. And for so for years everybody thought his name was Scannon. S C a N N O N, which I think is a great name for a dog, actually. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and in in the game, we actually allow you to rename him if you want. So I usually name him that. But um, they uh, 
there was a, a creek named Siemens Creek uh, that in Clark's um, maps, and that's how they recently figured out that it was ac- that was actually his name. You know, and then going back and looking at it, it, it all makes sense. Um, yeah, what, what is a what? Well, go ahead. Well, yeah, one one kind of unique twist that I think we've brought to it is he's always depicted as a black Newfoundland um, because that's how modern Newfoundlands are for the most part. Most of them are black. Um, But we've done, our historian, uh, Barb, uh, has done a lot of research on this, and the breed was very different in 1804. And the most common type then was what's called a Landseer in Newfoundland, which is, it's like half black and half white. And then and, and all the Newfoundlands then had just a, a slimmer body and a slimmer face. Um, and so we've, we're kind of depicting it differently. And you actually, you can choose either like a, a black one, a black and white one, or a brown one. Um, but So you have various dog skins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, what, when you say a working dog, what does a working dog do on an expedition like this? Yeah, well, he's a, he was a water dog. Um, so he would be on on the boats and you know most of the expedition was by river um and so the dog would be on the boats and um presumably he uh he was uh there uh to help rescue people if they went overboard although there there's no account of him doing that or any mention of him doing that and then also he would um he would like catch animals and particularly help catch wounded animals mm-hmm. they shot and um, also serve as protection. Oh, so for like hunting? Is, uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. For, yeah. Uh, and then finally, uh, have you received a cease and desist letter from the Tolkien estate yet? Uh, no, but I'm, I'm curious what makes <laughs> Is that the name of one of the? Is it one of the hobbits named Merryweather? Like, isn't that his full name? I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm too much Lord of the Rings geeking out on you. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. Um, No, although we we did actually receive a season to desist from somebody else. Who had Um, who had like based on a name or the subject? Why on what grounds could someone ask you to cease and desist? Our subtitle, um, an American epic. Um, so I'm still trying to work that out, so I guess I shouldn't get too into it. But, well, I'm just um, curious, uh, what led to this name? Because uh, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure. I, how many people know that Lewis's first name is Merriweather? Like, I, when I first heard about the Kickstarter, I didn't know what that was, and it, as soon as I clicked on it and saw Lewis and Clark, I was like, oh yeah, I guess so. Uh, right. Did Did you uh, consider other names? Um, obviously, American Epic. You. I, I like how that captures what you're trying to do. Uh, how did you arrive at the name, and, and what other names did you consider? Yeah, um, we did consider a lot of other names, although the, the funny thing is Merriweather, it started as the working title for it because the idea was to make a game about Merriweather Lewis. And so it embodied the idea, it embodied that idea. You know, it's not really a game about Lewis and Clark. It's a game about Lewis. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it also has this sort of personal feel. It's it's not about Lewis, it's about Merriweather. Um, nice. So, I mean, that was that was original thinking, and um, once we started to, to talk about it more publicly, we said, we said, okay, well, we need to find a a better title. Or, you know, or a, we need to find the actual title, I guess, is really what we said. And 
Um, we spent a lot of time doing research into, you know, what other possible titles could be. And we, you know, we just realized that this was, this was the actual, this was the title for this game. Mm -hmm. And, um, one of the things that, that led us there was, um, any, like titles that, that were specifically about Lewis and Clark, that had like Lewis and Clark in the title, for instance, it felt like maybe something in like the edutainment realm, which <laughs> is something that we're, we have, we're like constantly fighting. It's, it's a battle that we're constantly fighting because, um, yes, of course, this, you will learn something playing this game because it's about history, but it's not, you know, it's not an edutainment game per se. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's and the, it just has that that genre has such a bad rap. We you know we have to fight it. So by by giving it a, a more subtle or you know slightly convoluted name, I think it partially implies that that you're getting like a deeper, richer experience. Um, plus, it's just it's a unique word. The spelling is an issue. I was going to ask about that. How many people are trying to make it like like weather atmospheric effects? Yeah. How many people want to put an H after the W? That that must be a bear. Yeah, we, we a lot of times we get weather with with an A, and, you know it's it's W E T H E R, and so a lot of times we get the A, and sometimes people do a double R, which is kind of like a British spelling. Oh, well, you know, I wonder if that's a Hobbit thing, because in the Lord of the Rings, Mary is the I think it's the Hobbit, and it's short for Merryweather. So okay. yeah, maybe maybe us fantasy geeks have have been conditioned <laughs> to right. do Merryweather that way. Right. And, yeah, and. Um, I mean, it's actually the the interesting thing is it's his mother's maiden name. Yeah, and it's but and it's his first name, you know, from that family, which I think is kind of is kind of cool. Now, uh, you uh, you mentioned in the Kickstarter video, I think that uh, this idea was partly born when you and your wife, I believe, went on a camping trip at mm-hmm. some of the sites that the Lewis and Clark expedition visited. Uh, have you always been? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna assume. That anybody making this game, and I'm painting you and the rest of your development team with this brush, that anyone making this game is a bit of a history nerd. Uh, have you always been that, or is it something that you acquired on this camping trip? Uh, how much of a history nerd are you, and how long have you been one? I became a history nerd when I was in college. I started playing a lot of historical war games, like tabletop war games, like uh well specifically advanced squad leader mm-hmm. um and that got me interested in reading about history world war 2 history especially and um i can actually sort of trace a direct lineage from there to lewis and clark through these books by stephen ambrose who wrote um, sure. band of brothers and so he he wrote undaunted courage which is the book to read about Lewis and Clark as an introduction, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very, um, it's a very exciting account of the, of the story. And, um, so that, you know, that's sort of what got me hooked. And, um, and then, I mean, also, you know, my wife and I, we like to take road trips and camp and such. And we had, we had done a lot around the East coast and the South. And so, the the northwest the american northwest was kind of like our next our next place we wanted to go because we hadn't spent a lot of time there and i was i had also been reading a lot about lewis and clark just after that or just Mm -hmm. before that 
Uh, uh, you were working with a historian you referred to her earlier. Her name is, I believe, Barb. Is it Kubik? Is that how you say yeah, her name? Uh, Kubik. Kubik. Uh, what? Uh, tell us how you're how you're working with her. What, what is she bringing to the project? Yeah, she. This this is the first video game she's working on, which I think is really exciting to her and her kids. Also, um, are getting a big kick out of it, and um, she is a Lewis and Clark expert, um, especially for the Pacific Northwest and also for Sacagawea. Um, and she, uh, I got in touch with her through um, some, you know, mutual uh, acquaintance or friends, I guess, um, that you know were that were interested in Lewis and Clark, mm-hmm. and. Um, she she does a couple of things. I mean, one is um, she keeps us in line, and you know, like basically, she has like you know final say on all of the history, um, and you know, making sure that, that we're being accurate about it, and then also that we're being culturally respectful to the tribes. Um, but and you know, at first, I thought that would be her. Her primary role, because I, you know, I, I knew that was something that that I couldn't do. But I figured, well, I can, you know, I can look up all the history in various books or whatever. But you know, I, I've really learned now working with a professional historian that that she can bring so much more to the table. I mean, she she just has you know different ideas about uh, content to include or ways uh-huh. to portray the history that I just never would think of. And that's, I mean, that's the where she really shines, and you know, adds adds a, a big element to the team. Sure, uh, and, and it's different. It's different than I'm used to working with on on games. You know, like I've never worked with a historian before, and so I mean, we've we tried to integrate her into the team as much as possible. She's on most of our phone calls, and um, you know, at, at first we spent a lot of time kind of getting her up to speed on how a game development team works, and also having her get us to up to speed on how a historian works. Mm-hmm. Uh, say the name again of, because I, I think I've been doing it wrong, oh, of yeah. the, the Native American woman? Yeah, uh, so, well, Sacagawea is our pronunciation, but uh, Sacagawea is probably the most common pronunciation, although there's there are many there are many different pronunciations. But so, uh, uh, Barb, her, you know, her... Um, Take on it is Sacagawea is uh, phonetic uh, pronunciation as the uh, as Lewis and Clark wrote in their journals. Okay, like and that's how they would have heard it to their ears and expressed it in their journals. Right. Yes. Exactly. And and I mean, there's a number of spellings as well. And you know, this is something that's constantly debated. So I mean, I, I don't I don't um, I don't think that either of them is necessarily the actual pronunciation. I don't think there's a way to really know, but that's that's phonetically how they wrote it, at least. Right. And they they would write things very phonetically, um, and it's actually it's really interesting to see their spelling, um, you know, even of English words. Um, Clark writes, I, th- I think it's 13 different spellings of mosquitoes. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's 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 the, atro- the the spelling look it seems atrocious at first, but it's really endearing once you get used to it. You know, like, it has this real character. Uh, I will say, as far as uh, Sakagawea's name... Yeah, Sakagawea. Sakagawea's name, uh, the other way is way more fun to say. Sakagawea? 
Fuck it to yeah. Yeah, yeah it's you true. put a little spin on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I bounce back and forth between all of them. And actually, it's really interesting. Um, when Barb is talking about her, she'll constantly say Sacagawea, but then she she used to work at Sacagawea State Park, and so she always refers to that. That's the name of the park, is Sacagawea. Ah, right. But the <laughs> the person was Sacagawea. Right. And she, you know, so she's even always bouncing back and forth, you know, and and uh, it's I, I think it's one of the things that's highly debated and contested in the the Lewis and Clark community, you know. That, I would say maybe second only to Lewis's death, which is most people agree that he killed himself, but there are a lot of people who feel that he was murdered. Oh, I don't think I knew that. I mean, that, yeah. that by the way, gives the, the idea of a melancholy mechanic just that much more weight. Uh, right. I didn't. I didn't know that. That that's that. It, obviously, after the expedition, when uh, what's what's the accepted conventional wisdom about his death? Um, so it was uh, several years after the expedition. He was he was traveling back to. Um, oh, he was in St. Louis, and he was traveling back to uh, D.C. to address some, you know, uh, financial and uh, you know, legend or administrative uh, matters. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Tennessee, this place called Grinder's Stand, which was a, just a little, uh, not even an inn really, just for travelers to to stay at. He, he, he was shot, I mean, either by himself or somebody else. You know, we'll probably never really know for sure. But, um, but I would say most, the majority of um, scholars agree that that he killed himself and and i um i mean that's sort of the most believable to me and uh particularly because the people that knew him didn't they they weren't that surprised when it right. happened and they didn't spend a lot of time to try to uncover uh any kind of murder mm-hmm. um i i think one other really interesting theory um that um his lewis uh, Lewis's recent biographer uh, Thomas Denisi proposed is that um, because of um, malaria he he killed himself, but not it wasn't like out of depression. It was as a symptom of this disease, right? Um, which I think is kind of interesting too. Uh, did he? So he had malaria throughout the expedition, I presume. Yeah, he did. In, in fact, he had. He probably had many different strains of it because because of his travels, and I mean a lot of people at that time did have malaria. It was very common, but uh, and he he definitely he definitely had it, um, and he had it pretty bad. Is that a gameplay mechanic? Uh, it it is not, although the mosquitoes are, and the, the mosquitoes were they constantly write the mosquitoes were very troublesome, and it it is. Um, it is like constantly through their through their journals, which you know at first you you kind of think like these guys like really are you know are they that bad? But um, they I, like actually on my on my trip we spent some time a lo- you know a lot of time along the Missouri and even with our um, you know nice tents and uh, you know off bug spray. Like we couldn't keep we 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 couldn't stay away from the mosquitoes. I mean, they they can be terrible at the right time of year. Um, 
looked and and to them, I mean, they were really truly this like terrible pest. So you um, would agree that, that they're they're very troublesome. <laughs> they're very troublesome. Very. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so finally, I, I want to mention uh, you've gone above and beyond the call of duty as a, a fellow making a Lewis and Clark video game. You have done something I don't think I would bring myself to do. You ate a freaking beaver tail. <laughs> That's true. You tried to uh, put a positive spin on it, but I'm not sure I'm buying it. That must have been awful. Uh, no, it, it wasn't awful. <laughs> it, 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 it wasn't. I mean, I... I like trying different foods and weird foods and sometimes even gross foods. So maybe that helps. Um, it looked like no, a slice of salmon or something. I mean, just imagine kind of how fatty it was. I, I about got sick reading that blog entry. <laughs> no, it, it, it was pure fat. I mean, it, it was like eating pork rinds. Um, like, there, I mean, there was no meat or anything like that. Although I actually had a, a, a different time. I, I had had like beaver meat as well, which is much more like beef or something. It's just it's kind of dry. Right. Um, the tail, the tail, it's, it's just pure fat. It's, I mean, I, I wouldn't go out of my way to eat it, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn it down if I, if I was given, uh, some now a, a couple bites, like that's all I would want though. A couple <laughs> bites. Cause it's just pure fat, you know, like, but to them, to the men, it was a delicacy, right? You know, expedition because they were, uh, laboring very hard all day, every day, and they had no fat in their diet. Oh, they were, you know, they were mostly eating lean uh, venison and, and elk and, you know, stuff like that. So when they got something more fatty like a beaver tail or bear, um, it was really delicious. I guess and it's got to be kind of like uh, like Eskimos eating blubber or something. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so I, I consider that was that was quite a, a feat on your part. Congratulations. Yeah, it was interesting, and um, yeah, we I mean we fried it, and I think that's pretty much the only way to to actually do it, and probably how they did it. I think they fried a lot of stuff because they could they could cook it quickly that way. Right. Right. Uh, well, let's see. So I, I want to let you know then, uh, based on I I think it might have even predated your Kickstarter announcement. But I've just been on a sort of a theme-based gaming kick that Meriwether has folded really neatly into, and it's partly why I'm super psyched to, that, that you're making this and, and to get to eventually play it. Um, but I, I want to I mention for you a few games that kind of fit this motif, uh, and then ask if you've ever had any sort of a theme-based gaming tear like this. Um, sure. So this is basically this period of American history. There have been a few games, uh, a couple of them recent, some of them older, uh, that kind of fold into this. So Meriwether, obviously the Lewis Clark Expedition, early 1800s. Uh, I was also playing a lot of Assassin's Creed, which is set around the Revolutionary War and has that same vibe. Like I read about Meriwether and, I'm, and it makes me think, oh, I want to go do some of the hunting quests in Assassin's Creed because you play a Native American in that game and there's a sort of a collectible hunting system. And you're running around in the snow, and they do some beautiful outdoor terrain, and you're climbing in the trees. It's very Assassin's Creed, but they do a great job of situating it on the American frontier. Uh, similarly, and I think you might be into this, Joshua, because you mentioned Advanced Squad Leader in Puerto Rico. Huh. Do you know a board game called A Few Acres of Snow? I love it. I've played it a lot. It's great. 
man, I feel so like Johnny come lately because I've only discovered it <laughs> in the last month or so. This thing has been okay. out for, I guess, around a year. Uh, and it's such a brilliant game on a few levels, including mm-hmm. game design, but also in terms of theming. Uh, just how it captures that that time period and that environment, that terrain. It, it's based, of course, on the French and Indian Wars, the struggle between uh, England and France over the United States. Um, and I, I love how, you know, you mentioned how much they traveled on, on rivers during the Lewis and Clark expedition, and a few acres of snow is so reliant on things like riverine combat and right. travel. Um, right. Uh, yeah, so. Go ahead. They, their box art was one of our primary references when we were doing the box art for Meriwether. Oh, because I, I can I, see the, I the, love uh, the... Yeah, it's like a Native American standing there in like the snowshoe, the traditional snowshoes, right? Right. Yeah, yeah I, I love the style. I think the um, maybe not so much like the, the font and the, the graphic design, but that art, I think, is was a big influence for us. Because it's just... It, 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 it creates... It doesn't fit so well on a few acres of snow, but certainly I can see why you would want that for Meriwether. It creates this very personal sense, like here's a character in a setting. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I've discovered that recently, and I feel like, you know, I've been told previously how good it was, but I've only recently tried it and realized that uh, myself. Um, yeah. So you, you must really – uh, you've been playing a few acres of snow all along? Have you been with it for a while? I Yeah, I guess – yeah, I mean, I, maybe six months or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's great. I, th- I love how it takes the sort of like Dominion style mechanic and uh, and adds like the strategic element of of movement on a board. Yeah. You know? Without also, the movement on the board upstaging the deck building. I mean, I feel like the movement on the right. board is almost not quite this simple, but it's almost like score tracking and sort of it indicates what each player's strategy is trying to do. It doesn't overwhelm the deck building. The deck building is still so front and center. I, I Absolutely. And it's interesting, um, he has pretty in-depth designer's notes in the rule book, and mm-hmm. he basically says, you know, I... I, I, I specifically chose this mechanic because I felt like it represented the theme well uh, by, because it would take time to bring resources from Europe over to the Americas. And so that was reflected in adding cards into your deck and then waiting, having to wait for them to come up the next time. Yes, I love how you kind of have to think ahead about what you're going to do and then wait for it to come to fruition. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, it also captures nicely when i first read the rules uh you can only attack one place at a time and i remember reading the rules thinking well that's a little silly what if i want to attack on two fronts you know to keep my opponent off balance what if i want to siege two different forts why can't i do that uh and it makes sense though because of how difficult it was to bring forces to bear to, to siege a city or a fort or even a town. Like, it was a huge investment of resources, and I get that playing the game. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I get that sense that that's insane thinking you could fight in two places at once right. because you right. really have to focus so much. You know, the terrain was so 
inhospitable and it was so difficult moving men and resources. It was this almost Normandy scale of planning required before yeah. you do something like that. Uh, and I love how it captures that. You know, we're used to RTSs where you just build some artillery and then it blows away the walls and it looks cool and awesome. And, <laughs> and yeah, the artillery is expensive, but what else were you going to spend your money on? Here right. it just – uh, the, the logistics and the way that they're expressed in the cards uh, are, are just such a great bit of theming, I, I think. That's true. Yeah, it really is a game about logistics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I've had some games where there wasn't a single battle. Yes, And they yes. were, they were the, some of the best games. It's like both sides realize that they just need to maneuver in ways other than actual fighting, which is just so great, I think. And I like how the raiding mechanic using the, the Native Americans can sort of be a fighting by proxy there. I love how – and I've had yeah. entire games where nobody recruits Native Americans. You know, they're not even right. a factor. Uh, right. Do you lean towards the British or the French when you play? Um, I tend to play the French, I think, mm-hmm. mainly because uh, I mostly play it with my wife because it's a two-player game, and she's very aggressive – so she likes the British because they tend to like attack more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I play. I think I play the French more. I like to go more economic and get a lot of beaver pelts um, so that I can like just you know, I, like kind of win it through that you know the economy there. Right. Uh, it's surprising to me how. I feel like early in the game, it's really easy for Britain to make lots of money with their ships and uh, the, the merchant action. But as the game goes on and as France expands and has all these other properties which bring into your deck fur cards, uh, France becomes this weird uh, economic powerhouse. I don't, I don't know if it's ahistorical. I don't know if you have to sort of try to play it that way. But my experience has been that uh, France can get a lot of money from beaver pelts. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure how well it really depicts the history there of, of France, particularly, but I think it does do a really good job of showing the importance of the fur trade and like why those areas like around the Great Lakes and in Canada were so valuable. Like, right. Even though they were the middle of nowhere, they were so valuable because of those pelts. Right, right. Uh, have you played it online? I haven't. I didn't know you could. That's cool. Oh, Joshua, yeah. There's something called uh, Yukata, which is the name of a website. It's a German website. Germans love board games, and so they love to play them online. But there's an official version of it on yukata.de, which is the the cool. uh, suffix for, for Germany. And it's it's a full-blown version of a, full, a few acres of snow that you play uh, over the Internet. I've oh, I've great. played far more of that, and it, it moves much more quickly. You can more easily look through your your decks and see what you have in your deck without you know without having to pick up right. the cards and flip through them. Um, so yeah, I've been playing that a lot cool. online. Um, I'll check that out. Uh, and so the, another game then that I have been on a kick recently is there is a uh, it's not quite a mod. It's a uh, I don't know what you would call it, maybe a total conversion commercially released from Firaxis of Civilization IV called Civilization IV colon colonization, mm-hmm. uh, which is all about that early period of it, – it's more based on building up an empire and then having a revolution to, to separate from your, your mother country. Uh, but it, it just ties into that theming. You know, there's there's – fur and there's you know uh growing cotton and converting it into clothing and there's a whole manufacturing thing and there's a question of what do you do with founding fathers and with religion 
Um, it's just a really cool adaptation of Civilization Four to the unique themes of this time period. Yeah. Um, and it is based, by the way, on an earlier microprose game called Colonization from, I guess, the early 90s, maybe. Which uh, was a Sid, Me- Sid Meier game, right? Yep, exactly. Believe, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I haven't played Colonization yet, although I've checked it out, but, you know, because it's so relevant to what I'm doing. Right, right. Um, but I'm, I, uh, having played a lot of Civilization in the past, I know how I can... It's how time-consuming it can become, and so I've had to avoid it. It definitely, when you sit down to play a game of colonization, you're in there for like a 10, 12-hour haul. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a lunch hour thing. Right. Uh, but then here, then, finally, the, the final thing that fits into this kind of theming kick that I've been on for the uh, early America, this is the lunch hour way to do it, although it would be like the lunch 90 minutes, I guess. Uh, I so love the Michael Mann movie, uh, Last of the Mohicans, uh-huh. uh, with Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, which to me is just... It's sort of like a, a soap opera for history nerds. Right, uh, right. Uh, so, that's, so, so that, along with Colonization, Assassin's Creed 3, and A Few Acres of Snow, uh, has been sort of my theming kick uh, lately. Um, that's excellent. Yeah. That, and so, I, have a, I have a recommendation for you for another one to try, to add. Are you, are you going to mention Wilderness War? No, although that's very good, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you played that? That, that would be... I have I have not, but it's made by a guy named of I might I think I'm going to butcher his name. I want to say Volko Runke, uh, and he's made a game based on the War on Terror called uh, Labyrinth: The War on Terror, mm. uh, which I really love. It's it's another sort of his like games like Twilight Struggle uh, and 1960. Uh, it's card based where the cards are historical events. Uh, mainly, um, and also some assets. But it, it's a contemporary political game with two very asymmetrical sides, way more asymmetrical than even A Few Acres of Snow. Uh, okay. So I, I know of Wilderness War as his earlier version of that kind of design based on the French and Indian Wars. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, well, no, so this, the suggestion I was going to say is uh, 1812, which it's another board game. Um, which is about the War of 1812, um, and it uh, the the reason I love it is it's it's another game that's like it's technically a war game, mm-hmm. but it kind of plays like a Euro game. And is this an old game? It, no, it, it's fairly recent. I think within the last year or less, uh-huh. um, by Academy Games, they did a Kickstarter for it, and they actually just did a Kickstarter for the next game in the series, which is. Uh, about the American Revolution, which I'm really excited about. It's not out yet, um, but yeah, it's it's fairly recent and um, just really good. Very fast playing. Um, it doesn't. It's not like uh, a brain burner or anything. Even though like it appears to be when you look at it, but it's you know it's very very simple. You play a card and it gives you you know something. It limits your options in, in a in a very good way that makes it approachable. Is it a two player game? It's uh, it's two to five players, um, I, because there, there's basically five factions, but in two two alliances. Right. I, I generally play it as two player. And um, it is out. Uh, so they did a Kickstarter. They succeeded, and they've launched. They've shipped the game, and you can now purchase right. it. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. No, I love this tip. Eighteen twelve from Academy Games. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Good. Uh, all right. So uh, so there's my theming kick. Uh, can you think of anything similar that that you've uh, done joshua like with yeah, i think 
Well, I guess there, there's two. I mean, the, the obvious one for me is, is exploration games because mm-hmm. I'm working on one. So, I, I mean, over the last few years, I've just played a ton of uh, exploration-themed games. But the but also for me, the 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 one that I spent a lot of time playing is World War II games. Um, mm-hmm. Both um, both like tabletop games and video games, and you know, I, I spent a lot of time. Playing those, and that's you know that's sort of what got me into history. Um, and Advanced Squad Leader is it's this this game that it's probably the most complicated game ever made, and I love it, but I will never play it again because of that. Um, but you know, I went through this kick when I was when I was in college where I you know I wanted to just like find the most complicated thing because I, I guess I just equated that with being the best for whatever reason. Um, and and that game is, I mean, it comes in this uh, binder where you can, as you get more uh, modules, you like actually add more rules into the binder, which is kind of a great way to do it. Mm-hmm. And it has this great culture around it, um, where like all the players are, uh, they, you know, you feel a certain kinship with the other players because it, it's such a it's a community unique game. It is a community, yeah, it, it is, and. Um, and it's and so I played you know a lot of games in that series and um, you know at the time uh, it was like I guess um, Medal of Honor and um, Call of Duty were both World War Two and but I also I really liked um, oh what is it called I can't think of but the, you what, know what other, genre other series like it it was like a, a strategic um, first-person shooter where you could you would have like a squad. It was like a World War II squad-based combat. Uh, oh, uh, oh, Band of Brothers. Hidden, Hidden and Dangerous. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, right. Yeah. Yes, I, yeah. I love Hidden and Dangerous, and I mean, there's a few of them. Um, and it's it's like a really interesting tactical shooter, um, like first-person. Um, I guess also third-person, depending on how you play it, and like you you would really just maneuver in really interesting ways um i mean that this was like i guess late late 90s or 2000 you know 2000 ish um now you you mentioned so you mentioned asl and things like hidden and dangerous call of duty shooters uh that that says to me a more down in the weeds interest in world war ii at the the sort of the squad level the, the individual soldier level the battle sequences uh did that ever carry over into any larger scale war games like either strategic level recreations of world war ii or more divisional level war games yeah um i mean definitely played a lot of axis allies and Mm -hmm. um you know similar similar games but um one that i really like is called bitter woods that it's a a battle of the bulge game Mm -hmm. um that i think it's an avalon hill game a board game and Board game, yeah, and actually, there's um, a uh, there's there's one called there's an Axis and Allies game that's a Battle of the Bulge game that's excellent. Like I think you know, like Axis and Allies is sort of fun for the nostalgia, but it's not maybe the best game anymore. But the <laughs> Battle of the Bulge one is really good. It has a lot of really unique things, and I, I still play that. Um, well, now I have I to ask any high level, you know, World War Two video games. I'm not sure. 
there there's crazy complicated things like the hearts of iron series from paradox right. uh, yeah I love what I love the games that Paradox makes, but I like in theory, but I just never can really get into them. It's a yeah. it's another it's a whole other kind of commitment. Like when you sit down to play Colonization, you know it's twelve hours, but you're going to get into it fairly easily. When you sit down to try to figure out something like Hearts of Iron, it's kind of an unlimited amount of time, but there's a huge learning curve you you have to scale, yeah, before you're actually enjoying the game, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, for, for me, I, I guess I do less of that type of gaming these days just because I'm in front of the computer all day for work and I just it, you know I, I need to to get away from it rather right. than like spend more time on it well now I have to ask so you've mentioned a couple of Battle of the Bulge projects uh, do you have an iPad everyone has an iPad oh, Surely you've I, got an yeah, iPad. I, I do and I've bought it I assume you're talking about the Battle of the Bulge game for the iPad yep um, I bought it but I haven't played it yet but I want I, I, to I think you will be very delighted because it adds. It, it's a to me, it's this lovely reinvigoration of traditional wargaming, and it's based on the traditions of wargaming with moving chits around and all of that early Avalon Hill kind of stuff, but with a modern day appreciation for board gaming sensibilities, for streamlining, for making every move count, uh, for including a lot of detail without a lot of minutia. Uh, cool. I, I think you'll be very pleased with that. All right. Yeah, I can't wait. So are you also then, I wonder, a, a Western uh, theater kind of guy, European theater kind of guy? Because one of the things that I love about World War II and that I've uh, explored in my various dalliances with that theming is how many different facets there are to World War yeah. II. There's the European theater. There's 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 the, the war against Japan, the Pacific War. You know, I there. There's a North Africa game coming from the guys that did Battle of Bulge, which I'm looking forward to. There's the U-Boat War. Uh, uh, are, are you mainly a European theater kind of guy? Uh, yeah, I mean, I do think they're all interesting, but I think, yeah, ma mainly European theater um, for a couple of reasons. One is that I've, I've been there and I've, I've you know, been to um, a, lot of the, a lot of those places just you know, out of my interest in, in history. And also my, my grandfather served there. Ah, and um, in, in Normandy, um, and so uh, you know that I guess that's always sort of grabbed my attention. But I, I think it's all really interesting. Uh, Civic theater is also really interesting too. Did Did your grandfather come home? Uh, he did. He did. Okay. Yep. Uh, that's odd. And did Did he ever? Do you remember him telling you? Like, did he talk he, much about? It? He did not. He did not talk much about it. Um, uh, he 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 didn't talk much at all. He was just he was a very quiet guy, um, but he just he didn't really like to talk about it. The, but some a few, a few times he would, and it was uh, you know, it was very interesting and intriguing. I wish I had uh, when you know while he was still alive. I wish I had um, kind of probed him more about it. But yeah, I just I wasn't really that interested in it then. Right, and, and uh, even knew what to ask. Um, but recently, we we, uh, we found a lot of his um, like different like medals and uh, various ah. artifacts that he had collected during the war, and some things that he had like sent back home to my grandmother, and, and it was really interesting looking through through all that stuff. Uh, uh, so yeah. my my grandfather, uh, who had the unfortunate name of Opie Chick, <laughs> that was his name. That's a great name. 
you know what? I, I can imagine. Yeah, I, I don't know if he would have caught hell for that. But anyway, he was killed shortly after Normandy. He was there. He he served. He he stormed the beaches at Normandy, and a few days thereafter, died in combat. And I remember as a little kid, and my my father never even met his father. Uh, yeah. And I remember seeing as a kid my grandfather's uh, bronze star and purple heart. And just being fascinated by them and what they meant and really having no conception that young, Mm -hmm. all the history behind it. And as I learned more about it and like you sort of became interested in World War II through gaming, uh, just how much life that kind of acquired for me uh, and how in my head now my my grandfather's this almost mythical figure because he's entirely in my imagination. I never met him. I've seen pictures of him, but I, you know, he's he's a myth for me. Uh, So, yeah. Wow, yeah. Uh, all right, so uh, let's, Joshua, get into it. By the way, do you go by Josh or Joshua? It's both. It's okay. both. Yeah. Uh, let's talk some news and games of the week. Um, so uh, what do you have for news of the week? Because I'm eager to, to hear about your experience with this. I know what it is. Tell us what you've chosen for your news of the week. Sure. So last weekend I went to the Museum of the Moving Image, which is in Queens here in New York, and um, they have an exhibit there, uh, you know, temporary exhibit called uh, Space War Video Games Blast Off, which is um, an, it's an exhibit uh, curated by John Sharp um, about Space War, uh, which is arguably the first video game, mm-hmm. um, and sort of its descendants. Mm-hmm. And... Some some descendants that they have are uh, very very obvious things like uh, asteroids, um, and some I think are even maybe a bit of a stretch. But I you know I can see where they're coming from, like uh, Super Mario Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were were these all hands on? Was that the uh, the yes. unique angle here? Yes, they were. I think there was probably about fifteen fifteen games, um, and. Uh, yeah, you can play them all. A lot of which, you know, I have played before, um, because a lot of them are like classic arcade games, like uh, Battlezone and Tempest and Space Invaders and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, some of which I I hadn't just cause played before because they're more obscure. Like um, there was a great game that they had. Well, it, sort of great for um, the <laughs> Game Boy, uh, the Virtual Boy. You know, the, the, the 3D Game Boy with, like, the weird headset that you kind of put on. Right. And it, it was it's the best game I've played on Virtual Boy, which is not saying much. <laughs> but it was an interesting kind of Galaga-style um, shooter uh, that, was, that really, truly used the 3D. Let's see, I think I'm looking at the site. I think it's called um, Vertical Force. I think that's it. Mm-hmm. And so you could like actually switch between two vertical layers that truly use the 3D space. I thought in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, but the the best part of it was having an opportunity to play Space War because well, that's what I want to hear about. 1962. No way. This predates yeah. both of us. I mean, I'm, how could a game have been around before I was even born? And what was it like playing that? Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, it was fun. I, no, come I, on, come on! You're just was. saying that out of respect. <laughs> no, you know what? I I thought that's what it was going to be like, and I, I went there saying, "Well, you know, I know I'm not going to really enjoy playing this, but I need to play it just as the first video game." And 
it really is fun. Uh, a lot better than a lot of modern games. <laughs> you know, uh, like it's simple. Uh, you know, you're you're just flying. You're flying a spaceship, kind of like, kind of like an asteroid style spaceship. Um, and it's two players doing that. And so it's top down, like you're looking top down at a spaceship. Yeah, it and the, the ships look very much like like asteroids. Uh, ships and it's the same kind of thing where you change your facing and you thrust and you and you shoot. Um, the the thing that's amazing about it is like it has this great physics system. There's in the center of the screen is like I guess it's I don't know if it's a star or a black hole or something with a heavy gravity that you actually uh, can loop around like you can orbit around it and it, it pulls you into it and most of the time. Uh, we were we were dying just because we would crash into it. I mean, it's it's hard. It's a very it's a very difficult game. Like it's not it doesn't have some of the modern sensibilities of like you know what is like a smooth gaming experience. You know, right. but but once you kind of get the controls down, I mean, it's you're shooting at each other. Like it's fun. So it's a two player head to head real time mm-hmm. physics based game. That's right. Yep. And. Um, the, I would say the, the part that was definitely the most primitive is the controls. You are playing it with, they're like switches, they're physical switches that are, I'm sure are like intended to, um, to just like, you know, set values on, on a mainframe. And, you know, and it's just, it's not a intuitive or easy to use interface at all. And that, that part was weird. And especially the controls there, they were actually like kind of rotating. So like, even though you're supposed to move it left and right, I had to move it up and down. And like, it was, that was, that part was kind of difficult. Um, but this, the display was beautiful. It's, it's a really good looking game, especially for, you know, something that's what, 50 years old. Um, uh, oh, that's right. It's exactly 50 years old. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they uh, could uh, patch in mouse support. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if it had like um, even uh, like arcade buttons, like right. uh, like asteroids, like it would be great. I would play it. I would play it over asteroids. Whoa, that's some serious. Come on, yeah. not real. Yeah. Really? Okay. I, yeah. I mean, because it's two player. Well, you know what? That that goes, Joshua, with sort of what I feel about a lot of like like. Any game played multiplayer is is better than almost any game single player, especially if you know the other person. Like I would rather play a middling game multiplayer with a friend than a great game solo. Uh, right. I, I just feel that adds something. So I guess they were onto something back there 50 years ago. They knew that before video games had even been invented, really. Well, um, and they had, um, <coughs> excuse me, they had a uh, really interesting. Um, philosophy mm-hmm. or manifesto i guess that they had as part of the exhibit that they call it um the 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 uh, hingham institute study group for space warfare's theory of computer toys <laughs> that needs a snappier title surely there's yeah. some great acronym for that <laughs> it really does but i mean i you know i won't i won't go through the whole thing but basically they say like that it should it should demonstrate the computer's resources and tax them to the limit 
Which is kind of interesting because, I mean, that has been this manifesto of video games, although it's kind of going away, I think, now that right. we have the, you know, the resources to do, to do whatever we want everywhere. But, and then, um, one of the other things is, is they, it should, it, this is what it says for the, the, their last part is, it should involve the onlooker in a pl- pleasurable and active way. In short, it should be a game. Which is just so obvious um, now it, that a video game should be a game, but uh, I, I think it's interesting that they wrote they wrote this down this manifesto, you know. Right, right. Fifty years ago, that that is pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, now this this exhibit goes all the way up to uh, so let's see Halo Four. Did you get some hands on time, Joshua, with Halo Four? Well, I actually <laughs> didn't see Halo Four there. They, they, they do have it on the list. Maybe they yeah. yanked it. Who knows? Uh, I mean, I there definitely some. There was a few of the games where I I just like I didn't bother playing Super Mario Galaxy. Um, and I'm sure probably, I may have seen Halo Four and, and just said the same thing. Plus, plus, <laughs> uh, you know, I was I was really excited to play some of the other games, and I, I may have just got uh, um, you know been focused on that, but. Um, but I did play most of them actually, and uh, some some really great games. Uh, Yars Revenge is it's one of my favorite Atari Twenty Six Hundred games. No, wait, come on! You're going to tell me that's still fun? I cannot believe that Yars Revenge. It is. It's just so weird. <laughs> weird, I'll give you, but I can't. You know what? I, the thing is, Joshua, I don't guess I ever played it that much. I remember being kind of confounded by it as a kid and not sure what was going on. And I'm not sure I could describe it to you now. I can just see the image of the screen. Uh, but so you're, you're saying Yars Revenge kind of holds up? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, it's like I, you can't play it for a very long time. But like to go and play one or two games of it was mm-hmm. was very enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And um. I, I realized just how weird it was when I was trying to explain it. Um, it you know, like, it's just, it's, the, the design of it is completely influenced by the hardware of the Atari 2600 console, mm-hmm. which uh, se- several of those games were, because they just, they had such tight constraints to work within. And, like, now that I kind of know a little bit about how the Atari worked, like, I can see the the reason they did these weird things was because like that's the only thing you could do right. but it actually created some really unique forms of gameplay mm-hmm. all right so uh the exhibit do you know how long it's going for Joshua um i don't but i i know it's going for at least at least another month because uh it's going to be there during uh indicate east which is also which will be at the museum mm-hmm. which, is, which is next month Great, and that's in uh, Queens, New York, up there. Yeah, in Astoria. Which, and I think the reason it's in Astoria is because it was Astoria was like this hotbed of uh, film, you know, before. Oh, hence like, the moving images part of the museum's title. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's it, and it's a great museum in general. I mean, they have all this great er, um, early uh, film and TV equipment, and they always have like they have a permanent video game exhibit. Of like maybe eight or ten, you know, older arcade cabinets that are pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Cool, good. Uh, all right. Well, uh, I'm not in New York, so I can't go. I'm glad you <laughs> covered it for me. Uh, 
So my, my news of the week, uh, very briefly, THQ auctioned off all of their assets last week. Uh, it was a huge kind of reshuffling of developers and properties with different publishers. Very exciting news. And some kind of bad news that came out of that was that the developers of Darksiders, uh, they're called Vigil Games, was kind of left out in the cold. Uh, no one bid on them. They were not sold. They were basically orphaned. Um, however, the good news this week is that Crytek, a big German developer with uh, previously seven different studios around the world, now has an eighth studio in Austin, Texas. They are called Crytek USA, and they have basically been formed from 36 former employees of Vigil who were left homeless after the auction. Uh, so this is this is a Crytek's official American beachhead, you might say. Um, and congratulations to the fellows at, at Vigil. Uh, if you liked the Darksiders games, you'll be pleased to know that that team is now more or less intact, and I'll look forward to hearing what they're working on uh, next. Uh, Joshua, have you played the Crisis games? Do you know them? I, have, I haven't played them, no. Uh, so they're... I'm- Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I'm curious: is is Vigil continuing to work on what they were what they were doing, but you know, before the acquisition, or you know, or, or is it is it like really a new company that's just formed out of the remains? It's, it's really a new company formed out of the remains. I'm guessing that they don't have the rights to Darksiders. I'm guessing that that will get liquidated. Maybe they can get it again. But as far as I know, this is just the employees being sucked into a new organization, basically. Okay. Um, and the organization, I'm a little surprised at this. So the Crytek is the company, and they're mainly known for making the, the Crisis games. They made the first Far Cry, uh, and then that was turned over to Ubisoft. And since then, they've, uh, the third Crisis game is due out, I think, in early March. Um they also have in development a free-to-play shooter called Warface, Warfare, Warface, I think, mm-hmm. and that's kind yeah. of it. Yeah. Uh, so based on a, a, a developer that's this big that has eight studios worldwide, they just opened one in Istanbul, and now they've got U.S. Crytek USA in, in Austin. Um, it seems like a huge organization for so few titles. Like Ubisoft has like dozen a dozen studios around the world, and Ubisoft has got a whole mess of different titles, but Crytek just has Crisis and this Warface thing. Right. Uh, and, and I guess they're doing well enough that they could have so many studios, but uh, it seems odd that they're so far flung and yet so focused on pretty much a single property. Um, and it blows my mind as a as a small independent developer who, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm working on many different things all at once, you know, to think, you know, with very small teams. And small mm-hmm. collaborations. To think of like these giant companies, you know, only working on a single title, just it's so foreign to me. I guess. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's a totally different world I, than sort of where I am. Well, and also Crytek, I think part of their business is licensing the Crisis engine, which is the engine right. called Crytek. So they, they license that. But even then, if you look at the companies who have licensed the engine. It's a lot of smaller indie developers, um, mm-hmm. which, which leads me to wonder how much can they possibly be making from, from licensing the engine. Uh, so I'm sure they know what they're doing. And Germany, I believe, 
certainly in filmmaking, the, the government gives all sorts of wonderful, lucrative tax breaks to filmmakers. I suspect that might extend to video game makers as well. So maybe that gives them a special advantage financially. Who knows? Um, mm-hmm. But mainly, congratulations to the folks at Vigil. I, I really liked what they did with the Darksiders games. I'm glad the team gets to stay together, uh, and I look forward to hearing what they're doing next. Yeah, that's that's great that they, they can stay together. Yeah. Uh, so let's get on to some video games of the week. Joshua, I'm going to go first. Uh, so my game of the week, uh, do you play action RPGs much? Like are you sure. a Diablo 3 guy, or do oh, you play... Well, I played a lot of Diablo 2. I... Mm-hmm. I I played Diablo 3 to kind of try it, and it wasn't really for me, and uh, I, I didn't get too into it, but I mean, I, I like those style of games, and I, I like, um, I'm really into roguelike games, which mm-hmm. Diablo is sort of, you know, a, a stepchild of, I guess. Right. Do you ever play uh, action RPGs like Diablo on, on hardcore mode? Because for me, that really captures that roguelike experience mm-hmm. of how far can I get before I die. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, lo- I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and uh, that like actually, uh, games like like Spelunky. I mean, maybe it's not an action RPG exactly, but it's kind of like that. Um, that's the same style. Yeah, Spelunky is uh, you know, very much like that. Yeah. 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 Like like, how far am I going to push it before inevitably death catches up with yeah, me? Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And and it is actually you know it's a little, it's different in that it's a platformer, I guess. Right. Uh, right. Uh, and well, uh, the the action RPG that I've been playing lately, and actually you you mentioned the the rogue appeal. One of the problems with Diablo three in terms of playing it that way on hardcore mode is that as you level up in Diablo three, you're not really choosing, a, a, you're not making permanent choices about your character build. You are just unlocking a toy box of different items that you can equip or not as you like with with the mm-hmm. skills. Uh, and one of the appeals of a rogue game is I'm going to make choices about my character build that lock me into playing a certain way, and oops, I died. Now when I go back and play again, I can make different choices and it can play a little differently. Uh, Diablo 3 loses a little bit of that appeal because you're not making mutually exclusive choices. You're just deciding at any given time what toys am I going to play with. So when you get a 10th level wizard, he's going to have the exact same resources as the 10th level wizard that you that you just got killed or whatever. Uh, so yeah, and that's like, one of the things that kind of turned me off from it when I when I tried it too. Yeah, it definitely yeah. is. Uh, yeah, it, it was a huge shift for how action RPGs play. And if that didn't work for you, then Diablo three wouldn't work for you. It, it definitely mm-hmm. rested on that. So, but what I've been playing lately, what I've discovered, and it's it's amazing for a couple of reasons. And I want to mention four things briefly that are the big appeal for me. Is a free to play. That's normally a dirty word, but here. <laughs> don't know quite what to make of it. It's a free-to-play action RPG called Path of Exile. Um, this is made by a studio in New Zealand called Grinding Gear Games. And when you play it, you know, it's a big old fat download. And in terms of production values, it's close to Diablo 3, not quite that um, muscular and, and accessible, but it still looks good. Uh, you can get a lot of crazy stuff going on on screen. Um, they've got some connectivity issues, but it's technically in beta. Um, but right now, you jump in, you play for free. Their business system—they're just selling cosmetics. You know, if you if you don't want to spend any money, you're going to get the same game as people who are spending money. It's just they're going to look a little different. They're going to have different clothes and maybe a pet or whatever. Um, so, but the the four things that I really like about Path of Exile uh, are um, some of the design choices they've made for how to approach approach some of the difficult 
things that an action RPG has to face. So the first thing that I really like, uh, one of the tenets of action RPGs that just kills my interest is potions. If you play a game like Torchlight, <laughs> any boss battle is basically a matter of how many potions did you buy. Uh, and how long you can go before you have to go back to town a lot of times, how many mana potions do I have, how many health potions do I have. So the potion-based stuff in action RPGs just kills it for me. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the things that Path of Exile does is your potions are flasks that you equip, and then you fill them as you play, as you fight monsters. And it's a nice compromise between the traditional consumables how many potions can I carry, and the health globes that Diablo 3 introduced, where I'm basically healing up mana and health by just playing on the field. So here in Path of Exile, you equip different flasks, they have different properties, uh, and just as you play, they get refilled. You don't have to go back to town, you don't have to buy new things. Uh, They're magic items that you can equip and modify just like the rest of your gear. So I like their potion model. Uh, Number two, Joshua, you might appreciate this, when you level up, you, of course, get a skill point. You spend it on this huge, crazy, enormous, far-flung, labyrinthine map of passive skills. And it is insanely huge. When you first open it, it just looks like a little winding path, and you can branch around. But when you zoom all the way out, you realize that all five classes from different starting points, are navigating this huge, crazy maze of different skills. So what it feels like for me is, as I'm earning these skill points, is it feels like I'm exploring this far-flung map. You know, I can either set my sights on some distant goal, like I'm going to work my way over there, or I can just spend a point to see what's over the nearest hill. Uh, it's insane, and it's it's really daunting at first, but if you just take it one skill point at a time, I, I think it's really gratifying. Uh, so yeah, I love that approach. Go ahead. I, that's what I've heard people talking about this game. They, they all seem to love that. And, that and it's like a really yeah, great feature. I haven't tried it yet, but I, I want to. Well, and the thing is, I, I can see how some people might think it's overwhelming at first, but that's only if you're trying to wrap your head around it. And I think that's folly. Uh, it really is like exploring a map. You know, you, you explore a couple of nodes, a couple of branches at a time. Um, and yeah, so I love that about it. Uh, so the third thing I really like about Path of Exile, and this is pretty bold, there's no gold in this game. You don't spend money. Monsters don't drop money. Uh, it's only equipment. And the economy consists of selling this equipment and basically cashing it in for bits and pieces that coalesce into consumables. So, for instance, if I have a bunch of crappy equipment that I don't want and I give it to the merchant, he gives me these scraps that then turn into an identify scroll. Uh, If I give him magic items, he gives me these scraps, and when I get 20 of these scraps, it turns into an orb that can shuffle the magical properties of any item. Uh, If I give him certain things like other things I don't need, maybe he'll give me things that let me turn normal items into magic items. So, there's no gold, but there's there's a there's definitely an economy, and it's based on jiggering your your gear, uh, you know, changing it, uh, adapting it to different things. Uh, there's a there's a bit of the gambling in Diablo where you're just going to click to see what you get. Here you get these orbs, and you just use them to see if they make your magic items better. Uh, so I love the gold free economy. Um, and then finally, the fourth thing that I really like. Uh, is that the skills in this game are gems that you socket in your equipment. 
Normally, your skill is something that, you know, it's a tree baked into your choice of class. Here, your skills are gems that you pick up, and you put them in the items, and then that skill appears uh, in your interface, and you can fire it off. And the way you level up your skill is to just have it equipped as your character levels up. Every skill gem that you have equipped gathers experience with you and, and levels up. Uh, so what I, what I like about this is that it lends the game some of the flexibility you get in Diablo 3, where you've got a stable of tools and you just decide what you want to use, uh, rather than the intransigence of committing to certain character builds. You know, you're, you're, you're making choices, but you can still change them around. The huge passive tree, those are the mutually exclusive choices you make. But the skill gems give a little bit of Diablo 3's toy box feel. Like, okay, now I'm going to play with the fireballs. Okay, now I'm going to play with the ice spells. Okay, now I'm going to play with lightning. Um, and, I, and I really like how that decouples skills from your character build and, and gives you more flexibility. So for those four I love reasons, it. And, sounds, and I think sounds great. I want to play, play it right now. It's really it's 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 easy to jump into. It, it unfolds new mechanics. And by the way, one of the things it does with these gems is once you get about level fifteen, you start to find things that are called support gems, and those don't have any inherent value. They don't do anything alone. But if you find equipment that has slots that are linked to each other with a little line, you can then use a support gem to modify another gem, to basically change the way a skill works. And that's a bit like, I think they're called runes or glyphs or something like that in Diablo 3, where you unlock a skill and then you unlock modifiers to it. So here, part of that loot chase, part of the gear you're finding, are modifiers to your skills. And then that goes into what kind of equipment you use, and that can be jiggered by the economy by using these consumables to change your equipment. Um, it, it's a really uh, gratifying and, and new action RPG system. And it's, 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 I'm flabbergasted that it's free, that it's still in beta, but that it doesn't, you know, this is as good as any $60 game as far as I'm concerned at this point. Cool. Is uh, there a, a hardcore, like, permadeath mode? Oh, yeah. And that, oh, that, so that's another thing, Joshua. Because you're making such, exclu because you're, you're moving around on the skill tree, uh, you know, you're making mutually exclusive choices, you're deciding which gems to level up, it has some of the replayability in hardcore mode that a good roguelike has. You know, when I die in hardcore mode in Path of Exile, I don't feel like, oh gosh, I'm having to go through that same grind to get this character up again. I can play the same class and build a completely different kind of character when I play again in hardcore mode. Yeah. Excellent. So, so yeah, so Path of Exile, big thumbs up for me. I'm really enjoying it, um, and uh, I recommend it. So, All right, Joshua, what do you have then for your game of the week? So, uh, my game of the week, I actually, I wasn't sure if it had to be a video game. Um, it I hope it doesn't. Okay. We know we talk board games and, uh, yeah. Okay, good. Cause it is, it's a, well, it's a card game. It's Netrunner. Um, ah, yeah, yeah. Which is sort of a reboot or a remake. How would you characterize Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, uh, it started as a collectible card game by Richard Garfield, the designer of Magic the Gathering. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess, I think he did it. It may have been his next game after Magic. I'm not. I'm not sure, but it was, you know, followed up on on Magic: The Gathering. And I think, and I didn't. I actually didn't play the original, but I think most people feel like it's probably a deeper game than Magic, but it's it's a little less sexy and certainly didn't do as well commercially. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was recently 
uh, redeveloped by Fantasy, Fantasy Fight Flight Games um, as one of their living card games, which is it's like a it's like a collectible card game, except that when you buy the packs of cards, you know exactly what will be in them. Right. So there's no uh, no secondary market for cards, and uh, there's no rarities for, for cards or anything like that. Um, so you can you can always make whatever deck you want. You just I mean you have to buy the expansion, but once you have it, you you have it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I I think that they did a great job of modernizing the game from what i can tell you know not having played the original uh modernizing the game making it very approachable and incredibly thematic um it's the and the game is uh one player plays as a corporation uh like a giant mega corporation it's a, a cyberpunk theme mm-hmm. um and the other player is a hacker trying to hack into that corporation i guess i didn't realize it's so it's asymmetrical like it, it is be, ah yeah, and that's one of my favorite things about it is the, the asymmetry. Um, they, there's even different rules for each player. I mean, and they're they're related, but um, but they play very differently. And I think it's it, one of the things I really like is that the corporation has pretty much full knowledge of uh, the state of the game, other than maybe the other player's hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, and then the hacker. There's there's a lot more hidden information that the the hacker doesn't necessarily know, but one of the things they're trying to do is actually learn that information by hacking into these computers, and um, and so like when when you hack into a computer, uh, you get to look at different cards, you know that that are face down on the table or that are in a deck, and so you you really do truly it it really truly is about information, Mm -hmm. which so I think it, it. it uses that theme so well. On top of that, it's just a it's just a very well designed game, um, and it feels like there is infinite variation to it in the same way that Magic has. I mean, I, I haven't played it enough yet to to really know, but I just I get that sense that you could just make deck after deck, um, and the game will play very different every time. So it is each. That- Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. On top of that, if you switch sides, it plays different as well. You know, between the hacker and the corporation. Is each player using a pre-built deck? It comes. The base set comes with uh, three, three or four decks for each side mm-hmm. um, that are pre-built. But you, then you can uh, you can customize them. So it, it's it's deck building, um, not in like the, not like during the game like Dominion, but more like Magic where. You prepare your deck beforehand, um, right. you know, and there's there's different factions that that you can use to assemble that. And actually, I think it's an interesting take. Um, essentially, you can include as many cards as you want from your own faction. Uh, like you you choose a, spe- a single color basically to play, mm-hmm. and and then you can also add in up to 15 points worth of cards from other factions. Um, so you can it gives you I think a little more flexibility than something like Magic the Gathering where um, you can it's really difficult to play like more than two colors in Magic. Here you can you can splash in whatever other colors you want up you know up to fifteen points worth. Uh, are they short games? Like how long is a, a, a typical yeah. two player game? I think the games are maybe a little longer than I'd want for a deck building game. They're, I would say they're about forty five minutes. 
Okay. Um, I, I think it probably gets quicker as you get better at it, but you know, in a game like that, one of the things, the best part of it, I think, is like making your deck and you know playing it over and over again and, and revising it. And I think that's one of the reasons that the, those games appeal to me as a game designer is that's you're essentially designing a game. Um, and so the game it, it takes a little too long to do that repeatedly. That I mean, that's one criticism I'd have. On the other hand, the game. It allows you a lot more strategy and depth in the actual play of it than a lot of other deck building games, like something like Magic or Dominion. Uh, those games they, they almost play themselves, right. and the strategy is just in building the deck. Right here in Netrunner, it's both. Like there is definitely strategy in building the deck, but there is also a lot of strategy in how you play it, and even just the psychological aspect of bluffing is a big part of it because there is all this hidden information. Uh, so you mentioned it. So it's an LCG. So you basically buy a core set, uh, and then there are there are a lot of add-ons available right now. Yeah, I I only have the core set so far, but I think they have five or six uh, oh. add-ons already, which they're relatively small. I think they each have um, twenty cards or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, twenty different cards, and I think three copies of each card. So I mean, there's already a lot, and it's pretty pretty new and. Just judging by how many packs they've had for some of the other LCGs, like the Lord of the Rings one, I think, assuming that this is successful, I think there will be a lot, which is exciting to me, too. Right, right. Cool, and you've played this with the wife? Yeah, yep. <laughs> she, does she approve? She likes it? She's on yeah, board, too? Yeah, she she likes it. Um, she's not so into the theme. Like, I mean, just... Um, I, I like the cyberpunk theme. I've read a lot of William Gibson books and mm-hmm. uh, played Shadowrun and stuff like that. Um, for her, it's just like it's just not a theme that she's explored before. I mean, like she's probably seen um, uh, what's it called? What's the the movie from the eighties? Uh, the Keanu Reeves thing where he talks to a dolphin, Johnny Mnemonic. Well, oh, well, that too. Yeah, actually, yeah. Um, Blade, Blade Runner. Oh, Blade Runner, right, right. I can't believe you had to struggle for the name of Blade Runner, yeah, Joshua. I'm exactly. very disappointed in you. It's basically, and it's so similar in name, too, to Netrunner. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so, and, and and actually, that's one thing that was a little bit difficult at first in kind of explaining the game. But also one something that I think is cool about it is the theme is so tightly ingrained with the mechanics. Uh-huh. Like, all of the parts of the game have very specific terms like your your deck isn't called your deck it's called the your r&d if you're the corporation uh-huh. and um your discard pile is called the archives and they use all these really specific terms like or they use ice for um like the way that you protect your servers mm-hmm. they never actually explain like what ice even stands for which i think is interesting which is in- intrusion countermeasure electronics mm-hmm. um but, uh, I mean, basically it's software that protects your server. But, you know, they don't, they don't say that. And I, it's, I think they, maybe they assume that people know these terms, but I, I doubt it. I mean, that seems like a really specific thing. Um, but I think they also just like making that assumption and making those part of the world, like it just, it feels like more, a more cohesive experience in, in some interesting way. Right, that a lot of board games don't do. That that does make me think of things like playing something like A Few Acres of Snow or uh, 
you know, these kind of historical games where I think, oh, I want to read more about this. I want to find out more about this. Uh, and I wonder if this is kind of a game made for people who are already fans of that kind of William Gibson cyberpunk stuff um, right. with the assumption that you either already know about it or you'll be curious to find out what ICE stands for. And, and uh, Yeah. Uh, so I, I love – you basically had me at asymmetry. I think asymmetry is so inherently interesting in game design. Um, and so I, that's what I love about A Few Acres of Snow. And it's – you know, that, that makes me more than anything else curious to see Netrunner. Because um, I yeah, remember I, when it was a collectible card game, and I, I was into another one at that point called uh, called Jihad, which is like about vampires. Mm-hmm. Uh that you play around a table, and the only reason I didn't get into Netrunner at the time was because I was like, well, no, I've already got this other thing going. I don't want to get into another collectible card game. Right. <laughs> right. But I remembered hearing good things about it, and I remember being excited when I heard they were re-releasing it, not as a collectible game, but as an LCG. Yeah, yeah, I, I think they've done a great job with it, too. Yeah. So you know what also, when you describe it, Joshua, what, what I've got going on in the back of my head, and Fantasy Flight is mostly pretty awful about this, is I think... I wish they'd make that for the iPad. Because <laughs> that's yeah. the sort of thing I would love to get asynchronous games of that going. It would be excellent for that. I I would not be surprised if they do that. I mean, especially given that it's a tech theme. Right, right. Um, I bet they will. I mean, unless it if it maybe it doesn't fit in with their business plan because they're all about you know selling these booster packs. But I, I've got to I've got to imagine I. I um, actually have you seen the the Kickstarter for the new Small World? It's for both a board game and a video game, an iPad version of it simultaneously. Well, you know, it got canceled. Oh, did it really? They shut it down precisely oh. because they felt it was too confusing that they were trying to blend the iPad version and the board game, and so not not shutting it down like we're not going to do this. Shutting it down like we're going to reboot this and make it more clear what you're getting when you pledge. Uh, whether I, they might even oh. be doing two separate ones, so the project is still on, but the Kickstarter right. they they decided this is too confusing. We're going to restart this. Oh, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. But uh, I, you know what? As far as like asymmetry goes, I, Small World is—it's uh, kind of anybody can play it, and I just love how it expresses asymmetry uh, amongst mm-hmm. the different sides. Yeah, um, and I hate. By the way, I'm so mad at that stupid iPad version because it's there's no online play. It's only yeah. the two-player version. Yeah. Uh, the AI, of course, I don't know what you're going to do, but the, the AI is just not really that competent with it. Um, and you can't yeah. even use the AI as a third or fourth player. Right. Either, yeah. which is frustrating. And so I, I don't think Small World is good as a two-player game. I think it's a great game, but it's not very good for two players. Because you just two constantly players, go over top of each other. Yeah, that's I mean, the only strategy. And there are certain combinations of races and adjectives that can just shut out the other player. Like with three players, that at least gets balanced some, and you're having to jostle against two other people. But even though the board size scales for the number of players, uh, it definitely loses something if you're just doing it two-player. Um, right. That's an odd instance, Joshua, where I, I got the iPad version and, and really hated its expression on the iPad, but fell in love with the design, so immediately bought the board game. Um, and so I can't help but think I wish Fantasy Flight would do that with more of their properties because um, they've got a iPad version, which is really good, of of a 
co-op game called Elder Sign Omens. It's a Cthulhu-themed adventure thing. Um, And that's a very good expression of this co-op board game, but that's the only thing I know of that they've done digitally. Like, I don't, hmm. I don't think they have anything available for PCs. I don't think they have any other iPad games. And they've got so many cool properties where I feel like they could sort of sell the board game and at the very least make some of the record-keeping on the board game less tedious sure. uh, by, by putting it on the iPad. So Yeah, that's a great point. Fantasy Flight, if you're listening, for Pete's sake, make a iOS Netrunner. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Joshua, thank you for hanging out with me today. Uh, Thanks, Tom. I cannot wait for, for Meriwether, so uh, hurry up. <laughs> All right, I, I, I will. I'm trying. Uh, I, you know, it's so great being done with the Kickstarter. I've really been able to get back to focusing on on working on it. And, I mean, it's it's a, so enjoyable to work on this game, too. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully soon we'll have something like a playable demo out for people to actually get a, a real taste of it, too. Now, tell folks where they can find out more. So the, the Kickstarter closed, and it was very successful. I know that at the site, you're also accepting donations. Uh, tell us where folks can find out more about Meriwether. Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's still worth, I think, looking at our Kickstarter page. There's a lot of really great information there. And if you if you just go to Kickstarter and search for Meriwether, you'll find it. Um, but you, you can also um, go to our, our dev blog, which is meriwethergame.com. And that's M E R I. W-E-T-H-E-R, game.com. Um, and we have a dev blog on there, and we're also um, still allowing people to back us um, via PayPal um, and uh, get a lot of the same rewards we had on for Kickstarter, not quite everything. Um, and uh, we'll also be posting about our, our progress you know, as we as we continue through the development there. And uh, you can, no- you can read about uh, the eating the beaver tail uh, on as well. As well as the gross pictures of yes. my beaver tail. Oh, I'll put you off your lunch. <laughs> uh, also, uh, uh, please uh, like us on, no, rate us on iTunes. Uh, you can support the podcast through our PayPal button on quarter to three. Uh, and if you are shopping at Amazon.com, please use our little search box. We greatly appreciate it when you do that. I will be back next week with Jason T. McMaster, who is on a secret mission this week. Uh, and we will be talking about uh, a new unannounced game from a fairly prominent developer who uh, you don't know anything about it just yet, but you will next week. So uh, join us for that mystery reveal uh, next week. Uh, I am Tom Chick, and Joshua, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Thank you, Tom. Spend my days with a woman unkind Smoke my stuff and drink all my wine Made up my mind, make a new star Going to California with an aching in my heart Someone told me there's a girl out there With love in her eyes and flowers in her hair Actually, that's kind of a bad song for a Lewis and Clark theme because they didn't they didn't go to California, right? Uh, no, <laughs> just north of there. <laughs>
<laughs> it's sort of a more generalized version of Manifest Destiny. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> are, you, are you in California, Tom, or are you? I am in California, yes. Yes, I live out here in L.A. Uh, come on out. It's, it's been warm and very nice. Uh, yeah, that's not here. <laughs> but we don't have uh, video game displays at nearby museums, so you got that going for you. <laughs> You've got uh, Indiecade, though. We do have Indiecade. We have GDC. Uh, yeah. Do you ever come out for those? I do, yeah. Um, you know, this year, I think, is going to be the first year in a very long time that I'm not going to GDC. I just, oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Um, I will I will probably be at Indiecade. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I just I couldn't, I couldn't justify taking the time off. And, you know, I'm not like I didn't. I'm not doing anything there this year. So, like, I, yeah, I just I decided I, I've uh, I need to take a break for a year. I'm sure I'll be back next year. You could have brought your uh, Netrunner cards, and we could have had a game. That's true. That I, <laughs> that might that might be worth Maybe. the trip alone. <laughs> <laughs>